We often hear the term gratitude thrown around as a way of thinking that can have a positive impact on the world around us. But is it sound advice or simply an altruistic theory? You know how it sounds. We lost the deal. My biggest client is threatening to leave. My performance review did not go well. I don't have the money to do X. At times, this is life. As real as these thoughts are, we have a choice. What do we decide to focus on? What's going poorly or what's going well? In this part two with Chris Shembra, a gratitude expert and author of Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Gratitude Through Hard Times, Chris and I talk about how gratitude can deepen your conversation, the trust you build with your prospects and clients, and how and why you can begin your gratitude journey today. We do teach a form of how important gratitude is. So what we do is we teach our, our clients before they go into any big meeting with a prospect or a client, or as a leader, before you go into a meeting with one of your teammates, subordinates, or whomever's on your team, or before you start outreaching to strangers, you know, cold calling, prospecting, making sales calls. We actually teach them to spend 10 to 15 minutes grounding themselves mentally so they can come up with a mindset that keeps them calm, confident, convicted, and curious. Gratitude's a part of that. But what we find is that people are very inconsistent with it. What are some of the things that you can share? I mean, you've got a lot of experience on this topic and you've worked with a lot of people on it in organizations. What can you share with people about gratitude where they don't just journal for one or two days or maybe one week or, you know what I mean? How do they kind of create better practice with it? So the question is, the picture you just painted is that you teach sales professionals how to get in the right mindset of gratitude and curiosity and peace and calm and abundance before they get on a sales call so that they can handle the ejection properly and connect to the prospect in a meaningful way while on the call. But the problem is they don't do it consistently enough. And let's insert another problem, which is if a sales person has a hundred calls a day, where do they find the time to do that before every big call? My answer would be do it during the call in a pro-social way with the prospect. Let me paint you a scene. Imagine getting on a prospecting call, a sales call, an existing client call, a call with one of your direct reports and asking a simple question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to or that you've never thought to thank, who would that be? And whoever you're on the call with takes a few minutes to answer that question. They've never thought to thank their grandmother. They've never thought to thank their third grade teacher. They've never thought to thank their ex-bad boss, their mean ex-girlfriend. They've never thought to thank themselves. 
And all the while you're sitting there and you're asking good follow-up questions. You're mirroring the statements they make. You're labeling the emotions that you see, that you feel, that you experience on the other end of the phone call. And by the time those five minutes are done, you are emotionally connected to that prospect, that existing client, that direct report. See, Google in their promotion to emotion study found that buyers with a strong emotional tie to your brand is five times more likely to consider purchasing, 12 times more likely to purchase, and 30 times more likely to pay a premium. Bringing emotion into a B2B sale increases the potential to upsell, cross-sell, increased revenue or referrals. So why not start that call with emotional connection, knowing that whatever follows that is more grounded, more curious, more connected, more empathetic, and you didn't have to prepare 15 minutes in advance for that, and you did it in connection with who you're trying to connect with. Boom. We encourage all of our clients to experiment. That's how we evolve as human beings. So that would be a really good experiment for a lot of our listeners. One of the things that we do teach them, and I'd be curious if this is in the same realm or if it's different. So we do teach that if you find out that the decision maker has been at their spot for 18 months or less, in other words, they're fairly new within the organization or their role within 18 months, and you could probably argue two years, we want our clients to ask a series of questions like, hey, since you've taken this role over, what's the biggest surprise that you've experienced? Or, hey, since you've taken this role over, is there a particular project or an achievement that you're most proud of with your team? So we do teach to ask those types of questions. But I like the additive of the one you suggested, which is, hey, You've had a nice career, it sounds like. Who played an important role in that career? Who was an influencer for you? I really like that ad. Yes, and I wanna take your questions one step further. One of the leading questions that you asked was, since you've taken this role, how has your position changed? I would shift that to, since you've taken this role, this new role, how has your life outside of work changed? I like that ad, yeah. It allows you to learn things about work while getting them to think about how their life has changed. Because, oh, by the way, Harvard Business Review's new science of customer emotions shows that the new modern customer wants to feel a sense of belonging, of thrill, of purpose, like working with you has somehow positively impacted their life. Whether it's you inviting your customers together to feel a sense of belonging and community, whether it's you helping them somehow in their personal life based on y'all being in a vendor-client relationship. So the more that you can learn about their personal life outside of work, the more that they will stay loyal to you within their work. So I have a question on this, Chris. I, I love this. I think you're spot on. I know there's a certain population though, and they don't, they don't mean to, to say it, but they're gonna say this to both you and I. 
I don't feel like I have the right to ask that decision maker how their new role has changed their life. I feel like I don't have the right to ask that decision maker yet who's been the biggest influence in their life and why. Because we get that a lot where the sales professional just doesn't think that they've earned the right or they have whatever you call it to ask those questions. How do you respond to something like that? What's your, what's your thoughts? My question to any sales professional who's convinced themselves that you don't have the right to ask your prospect, client, or customer what's going on in their life is likely a byproduct of you having not asked yourself what's going on in your life. So the odds are we as Americans, as sales professionals in America, have not taken care of our own side of the street in a good enough way. 51% of Americans report feeling lonely on a consistent basis. 76% of Americans report at least one symptom of a mental health condition on a daily basis. If we are walking around with our heart at war, emotionally exhausted, depressed, disconnected, how can we have the confidence in order to show up for others in the deeply emotional way that we know we need to show up for them? Because the truth is, if you're selling anything large in a B2B capacity, that's actually a very emotionally charged deal. You got a lot of stuff riding on a $10 million deal. You better clear up your emotional side of the street before you can hopefully emotionally connect with who you're about to ask 10 million bucks from. And so I wouldn't say push it. I wouldn't say use any of these strategies on your prospects, clients, customers yet until you've done your own work. That's so vitally important, how we show up to others. It's not about changing others. It's about changing yourself and using that law of attraction to attract the right customers to you because you're going out into the world in a positive way. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. I love the way you said that. Um, we talk about control what you can control. You can only control your mindset, which is your attitude, which is your actions and your effort. Other than that, you can't control anything else. So stop trying to change others and spend the time working on yourself. Change yourself. That's the one thing you can control. It's a wonderful book called An Anatomy of Peace. I think I've heard of it. And it's um, by far the most recommended book I've ever recommended to people. It is an international bestseller in conflict resolution for over a decade, written by the Arbinger Institute. And just as a two-minute story, it follows the fictional narrative of six sets of parents dropping their kids off to a wilderness rehab in the woods of Utah, New Mexico, Arizona. The same wilderness rehab that I actually went to when I was 20. And this wilderness rehab was founded by a Palestinian Arab and an Israeli Jew whose fathers were both killed by each other's tribes many years ago, and they somehow found peace. 
they built a rehab together. And so these parents, when they drop off their kids, it's obligatory to stay for a couple days just to get to know the owners, see what the kids are doing, all that kind of stuff. So the, the kids are dropped off. They get put into the van. They get driven out to the middle of the woods. The parents have to stay. One of the parents, this corporate sales professional, like some of you listeners on this call, looks at the two owners and says, I can't wait to spend the next two days figuring out how you're going to fix my kid. They're like, the two owners say, well, uh, we're, we're not going to be talking about that for the next two days at all. We're not going to be talking about the kids. We're going to be talking about you, the parents. And he says, but I'm not the problem. They're the problem. My kid's the broken one. And they says, ah, yes, that is the rhetoric. But in order to see the change you want to see in others, your kid, first you have to make the change within yourself. And they spend the next two days talking about how the parents might accidentally show up into the parent-child relationship and the parent CEO, the parent sales professional, the parent whatever relationship from a lens of entitlement. Anatomy of Peace argues that there's two types of entitlement in our world. Either one, we're walking around with a superiority complex, thinking that we are better than others, we deserve special treatment, we deserve to be put on a pedestal, we've got the best product, we've got the best service, and you should buy from us. There's another type of person that walks around the world thinking that their trauma, what they've been through, is bigger than your trauma, what you've been through. And therefore, I deserve special treatment. You should buy from me out of pity. I've been through far worse things than you have. Me, me, me. Both are forms of entitlement. We've all met that person in our lives, haven't we? Well, what you haven't acknowledged is, what is your role in entitlement? How do you reek of victim mindset or a superiority complex? How does you walking around the world thinking that your shit doesn't stink or that you deserve special treatment affect how you show up with empathy and curiosity and asking good questions towards others? And so gratitude helps shift from entitlement to humility, from superiority to curiosity, from thinking that your shit doesn't stink or that it stinks more than others, to I have so much to learn from you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to be curious about your human existence. How can I build something that you need? Not how can I sell you something that I've built? It's a massively different way of walking around the world. And so once you get out of your heart being at war and shift it to your heart being at peace with an attitude of gratitude by asking curious questions, by leading with empathy. Whoa, so many beautiful things will happen in the people around you. They will shift and ultimately they'll buy more, promote more and demonstrate more loyalty because you didn't show up to the call like a, a dingleberry. You brought up um, indirectly this next word, envy. Yes. 
But when I think about social media and how it's used at the surface level where anybody can give the impression that they want, they can give the impression that they are the most successful human being on the face of the planet within their space. They can give the impression that they live a life that's 24 by seven of pure glamor, joy, happiness, and fulfillment, right? They can give an impression about that with their work, their friends, their family, their kids. It's all impression management. But my gut is this idea of envy must be just, it has to be something that's in the population growing significantly because there's so much center stage. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at me with this person. Look at me with this group. Look at me at this dinner. Look at me at this event. Look at me over here. I got to imagine gratitude has got to be one of the best ways to ground ourselves dealing with what we deal with now on a 24 by seven basis regarding social media. I'd love to hear your, your comments on that. Envy is the ulcer of the soul. Comparison is the thief of joy. Envy is the idea of comparing ourselves, usually in a very negative light, to the best achievements of others, thinking that everybody around us has the perfect life and can share all the best things on social media and things are amazing where we look at ourselves and say, I'm pitiful. I don't have what they have. I'm a nobody. Blah. Gratitude helps do two things. First, it helps shift our own mindset that we are not pitiful. We have received tremendous amounts of positive benefits or things of value from others in the past. We are deserving to be on this planet, in this world. The second thing it does is it helps. So when you have a, an attitude of gratitude, when you have a positive mental attitude due to being grateful, it helps you do something that squashes envy. You shift from envy to mudita. You stop being jealous of what others have. You stop comparing yourselves to the achievements of others and you start celebrating the achievements of others and celebrating what others have. Mudita is an ancient Indian word that means to find good fortune, to delight in the good fortune of others. I find joy in your successes. And you can only find joy in other successes rather than envy from other successes with a positive mental attitude, an attitude of gratitude and grateful abundance. If you're walking around the world in comparison, in thievery and anxiety and fear, you'll never be able to, do, to truly celebrate the successes of others. You know, we share in, in a lot of our keynotes that the true economic potential of any successful team or organization lies not in their ability to build successful individuals, but to build teams where the individuals celebrate each other's successes. Think about the difference. It's not based on the strength or the quality of the individual on, on the team. It's based on the strength or the quality of their connections and their ability to celebrate each other's successes. Imagine having a sales organization that champions each other's successes 
and collaborates rather than competes and is envious of each other's successes. You'll turn your whole organization around. It can only come through an attitude of gratitude. That was Chris Shemba, gratitude expert and author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling Gratitude Through Hard Times and Gratitude and Pasta. Tune in next time to hear Chris and I continue our conversation where we discuss the link between gratitude and curiosity.